Welcome to episode 15 of the Detox Dilemma podcast. I am your host, Wendy, and I'm really excited about today. After I published episode six of the podcast, which is on why you need a full thyroid panel, I got a lot of requests to do a follow-up episode that was all about healing from Hashimoto's. So I asked the amazing naturopathic physician, Dr. Hannah Lindsay, and my friend to come onto the podcast and talk about all things thyroid Hashimoto's. We dig into why Western medicine doctors won't do full thyroid panels, the root causes of thyroid issues in Hashimoto's, the role that diet plays, hormones, gut. We even get into medication options. I actually get asked a ton about my healing journey and how I put Hashimoto's into remission. And we talk a lot about what you can do to advocate for yourself and the things you can do now to start healing from your own Hashimoto's. If you're somebody with a thyroid issue, you are not going to want to miss this. Hey there, my name is Wendy, and I'm an environmental toxins lawyer who is obsessed with showing women how to toss the toxins out of their life and embrace a more holistic lifestyle. I'll be dishing up bite-sized but binge-worthy episodes on all things detox, low-tox, and what's that toxin? And what is it really doing to my health? I'm breaking it all down for you, separating the myths from the facts and pulling back the curtain on the products and beauty industry. You'll hear my unfiltered and sometimes unpopular, but honest opinions. No topic is off limits. We'll dive into what's really causing our thyroid issues, hormone imbalances, infertility, and more. Think of it as a crash course for all things holistic living, but for real life. You don't have to do everything. You just have to start somewhere. Let me show you how. This is the Detox Dilemma Podcast. Today is a exciting day. I finally have Dr. Hannah Lindsay on the line, and we're going to be talking about my favorite topic because it's personal, something that is so common on among my listeners, and that is Hashimoto's and thyroid issues. So welcome to the show. So excited you're here. Thank you. Yes, so excited to be here. So I always like to ask our guests, like, how did you get to where you are? I know you are a naturopathic doctor. Why did you choose that route over going to a more traditional medical school and going the allopathic route? Yeah. So I love this question because there's so many pieces that kind of played into it. I was studying undergrad. I started as a pre-med majoring in chemistry. I went to New York University and I really didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to go into medicine. And I actually, my sophomore year of college, had some of my, my own health challenges come up. I ended up being diagnosed with Crohn's disease, which is an autoimmune condition of the gut. And I had no idea what to do about it. I went through the challenge of hopping from doctor to doctor, going to gastroenterologist, being scoped down the throat and you know up the other way and all the tests. And that whole period of my life was really hard. And so I started kind of researching other options. And that's kind of when I came across nutrition and things that you can do, things that you can eat to heal your gut and heal your body. And I started realizing this is nowhere to be found in the allopathic medical model. So I became very disillusioned with you know your conventional or allopathic medicine. And so I switched my major to nutrition and dietetics. And that's what I ended up studying for my bachelor's degree. And it wasn't until the end of my junior year, beginning of senior year of college that I actually found naturopathic medicine. 
And the second I read the six principles about, you know, the healing power of nature, identifying and treating the cause of disease, all of these things just resonated so deeply with me. And I knew it was exactly what I was created to do. I knew I had to be a naturopathic physician. And so kind of from that point on, I, I never looked back and I ended up healing my Crohn's disease with my diet alone. I was never on any medications. And so I really just never looked back. And that, that was sort of just the beginning of what turned me towards this whole world of naturopathic medicine. Oh, I love that so much because, you know, even though it's not a good thing and I don't love that you had Crohn's disease at a young age, but having that health issue at a young age allowed you to make that choice early. I find that the majority of people that I'm talking to or I'm helping or my audience, you know, they're in their forties and fifties and they have lots of issues, right? They they're have thyroid issues. They have Hashimoto's. They have other autoimmune. They have, you know, they can't lose weight. They're fatigued. All, they have all these health issues. And then that is my average age that I see people after spending decades in the allopathic, you know, medical community say, well, shit, none of this is working. Like it's just not working. I'm just taking more medication. And so then they slowly find their way into more integrative naturopathic models of medicine. Yeah, I felt very blessed to come across naturopathic medicine at the time when I did, because I, I genuinely don't know how my life, my health would have turned out had I not. But I think what's so frustrating is in the allopathic medical model, so often we're told, oh, you're going to have this for the rest of your life. This is this is going to be your life. You know, I was never told that there was a way to reverse Crohn's disease. And even now, doctors will claim that there's not. But I'm living proof. I was diagnosed at 19 and I never had it past 21. So I was just opened up to the world and the possibilities of health. And so whenever that happens in life, it's just so important to remember it's never too late to start or to change or to benefit your health or reverse disease. There's no better time than now. I love that. I actually, so, and I know you know my story because we know each other, (laughs) but (laughs) I, you know, I never say I reversed my Hashimoto's. And I think I only say that from a place of insecurity and because it's not an acceptable thing to say. I typically say I put my Hashimoto's into remission because that is more acceptable. People are like, well, that can happen. But I I think it's unfortunate that we do have this attitude in our culture that diseases happen to us mm-hmm. and then you can't undo the reason for it. And I just think that's total garbage. I think that in my experience and even in all of the literature and the research, I mean, if some of these allopathic doctors would read research articles, you know, they would <laughs> <If> only. <laughs> and I used to go into doctor's offices with piles of journal articles and my own, you know, blood work, and I would hand it to them. These are endocrinologists specifically, people who I believed knew the thyroid better than anybody, right? This impression that, well, that's what they went to school for. And they could not think outside of their medical school toolbox. Like they just wouldn't. And it was very frustrating. I had similar experiences going to gastroenterologists and I had just started studying nutrition and I was like, hey, can we talk about my diet? And they're like, oh, you know, that's not going to change how you're presenting. That's not going to change the disease process. And I'm happy to say that that mindset is starting to shift. People are starting to be more open-minded. Allopathic doctors, naturopathic doctors alike are starting to kind of realize the role that diet plays into any condition, let alone 
a gastrointestinal condition. I mean, come on. But that was also when I realized they don't even have education on nutrition in most medical schools. At the time when I was in school, it was almost unheard of for any doctor to have any any type of formal education in nutrition, which just was mind boggling to me because that is the core, what you're putting in your body, what you're fueling your body with is the core of your health, period. <laughs> I've heard that. I've actually heard, I think now I have a friend who finished medical school, although it was an osteopathic school. So kind of like, you know, in between the regular mm-hmm. medical schools and the naturopathic. And I think he said he took like eight hours of nutrition. And that's even in a school that's like more of a whole, you know, a holistic kind of functional type medicine out there. So it's still not, these doctors are not getting nutrition education, like you said. Yeah, they might learn what are your water soluble and your fat soluble vitamins, but that's about it. (laughs) Yeah. And they also tell you folic acid is great. So, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So let's dig into a conversation about thyroid, hypothyroidism, Hashimoto's. So one of the things that I have learned is there are root causes of Hashimoto's, which is an autoimmune. It doesn't just, you don't just wake up one day and you have it. So talk to me a little bit about what, you have Hashimoto's, right? I do. Yes. Add it to my list. (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting. I hadn't even put that together because I've read, there's a lot of uh, data on, you know, once you have one autoimmune, you're more susceptible to another autoimmune condition. Absolutely. We see them come in pairs and two, three, four, they always come together. And it's because a lot of the root causes are linked. So. Oh, it's so interesting. So let's talk about some of the root causes of Hashimoto's. What do you see in your clinical practice? Yeah. So a lot of people say, and it's frustrating to hear this, but when we talk about Hajimoto's, we always first talk about a form of genetic predisposition. And there is some level of genetic predisposition to certain autoimmune conditions. However, so often people just throw that in the wind and say, oh, that's what it was. It's just, I was going to have this. I was born to have this. And that's how it is. And that could not be farther from the truth. I knew I had a genetic predisposition to it. My mother and my sister both have Hajimoto's. However, I wasn't diagnosed with Hajimoto's until I was well into medical school. And so at this point, I had a nutrition degree under my belt. I was treating my body how I should. I really didn't expect to be diagnosed. However, the trigger for me, which is one of the root causes of Hajimoto's, was stress. Medical school is very stressful. And it was near, I think, the beginning of my second year of medical school where I started presenting with symptoms. I ended up getting tested and I was diagnosed. And thank God I was going to naturopathic medical school. So I was treated naturopathically and have been since. However, there's always a trigger. There's always something that is going to start this autoimmune process. Our bodies don't just decide to attack our own tissue out of nowhere. If your immune system is attacking your thyroid tissue, something has triggered that. Whether it could be stress, it could be an external stressor, like for me with medical school, it could be some other form of stress on your body, the diet that you're eating, it could be some form of toxic stress or toxic burden, whether that be toxic metals, heavy metals, mold toxicity, environmental toxins, it could be food sensitivities, chronic infections, even trauma can trigger an autoimmune condition. So that's why everyone is so different when we treat Hajimoto's is because the triggers can vary widely. And in order to really treat the the cause of what's going on, we need to treat the trigger. 
It's funny. I actually think this is one of the reasons why people have such a hard time accepting holistic medicine, functional medicine, that's root cause medicine is because like you just said, you have somebody who presents with Hashimoto's and the quote unquote treatment is not like a one size fits all. It's not, oh, you have Hashimoto's, you need X. It is, well, there's 12 different things <laughs> that could yeah. you know, be contributing and you as, a, as an individual person with your own lifestyle and nutrition and job and friends and location and toxic burden and all those things, it may be a different root cause than somebody else that has Hashimoto's. And I think that that's frustrating to people to not just have like an answer. And I think that is why people really do accept Western medicine and pharma, well, like so pharmaceutical medicine, right? Like here's your disease and here's the answer is because it's easy and it's simple and it makes sense to them. And it's not hard, you know, <laughs> you don't have to go digging. The doctor's not like, okay, so there's 25 different medications and here's all the things they do. And it's not that. I think it's just easy. I mean, absolutely. I think that's the draw towards allopathic medicine with any condition is a lot of people don't want to put in the work, you know, healing is work. It's not easy. And as a naturopathic physician, as much as I wish I could crawl into your world and do the work for you, I need my patients to be willing to partner with me and meet me halfway and be willing to put in some work. And they might have to give up some foods that they love. They might have to go through a, a period of detox. That's not very fun. But at the end of the day, that individualization is also what gets us to a place where we actually feel good again. Because so often I have patients come into my clinic with Hajimoto's and maybe they were just put on meds or maybe they've been on meds for 30 years, but they still feel like crap. They still feel fatigued. They still have brain fog. They're still losing their hair. Their skin is dry. They could be on medication and their labs might look good, but they still feel awful because we haven't actually treated what's truly going on beneath the surface. And so you do have to be willing and willing to put in the work, but trust me when I say the the outcome is is worth it. I'm living proof of that. I the, it was not easy. I worked really hard at it and I'm so grateful. So grateful that I did. I I wouldn't want to go back to how I felt 2 years ago. 3 years ago for anything. My quality of life is so much better and I'm so grateful that I had naturopathic support and functional medicine trained physicians to support me along the way. So let's talk about one specific root cause, something that is one of my root causes, I believe, and that's estrogen dominance. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how often you see that in your clinical practice? I'd also love to hear from you how you test for it. This is like one of the most number one <laughs> questions that I get from people. I'm hearing all about estrogen dominance and I know all the ways that I could be estrogen dominant and what that means, but my I don't know how to test for it and neither does my doctor. I know that was multiple questions in one, but no, it's a it's a great question. And you know, even in my story, when I was diagnosed with Haji's, I also happened to be in a state of estrogen dominance. My progesterone was basically non-existent. And so estrogen dominance is kind of a catchy phrase nowadays in the health world. And but what we're really talking about is levels of estrogen that are too high in comparison to our progesterone. That's the simplest way to look at it. Now, this could mean that your estrogen is high out of range, or it could mean that your estrogen is within range, but 
your progesterone is too low or at the low end of normal. And estrogen dominance is so common because of the world we live in. Unfortunately, we live in a very toxic world and we have xenoestrogens in our environment, which are basically chemicals, pesticides, plastics, things that look really similarly to estrogen. And in our body, when we're exposed to them, they actually bind to our estrogen receptors and they convince our body that we have way more estrogen than we need. And so we start responding to them. You know, you can even find xenoestrogens in water supply and it's, it's horrible to think about. Sometimes I joke with my patients, we can't, we can't be bubble boy. We can't live in bubbles. So what can we do about this? So you mentioned testing. Testing is of course the first step. We always test hormones on our patients. It's part of our annual lab work, which if I was talking to an allopathic physician, there's a good chance they'd be shaking their head because I don't know why it's like pulling teeth to get an allopathic physician to to test hormones. They just feel like it's irrelevant and typically will only do it if you have PCOS. And then even then they're only really looking at testosterone. But we do full hormone panel on men and women. We're always looking at all the hormones. And ideally, we will even do a a urine test to look at metabolites of hormones because the level of the hormone in your blood can only tell you so much. If we see the metabolites and see even how the estrogen is being broken down in your body, that can give us a lot of information too, because it could be an issue if your if your liver's not operating properly, you might not be metabolizing and excreting your estrogen at a high enough level to keep up with the production or the xenoestrogens in your environment. So it's kind of twofold. You want to make sure you're protecting yourself from these exogenous sources, but you're also supporting your detox and the way that your body's metabolizing your hormones to kind of help balance everything out. Yeah, I did that. I did the, you know, my blood test was somewhat normal. And then my urine test was when we found that significant, my ratio of estrogen to progesterone was way off. Yeah, ideally, we always run the whole urine profile, and it just gives us the most information. And we can look at cortisol levels too, and metabolites of cortisol, because your adrenal gland is what's producing your sex hormones, as well as your cortisol. So we may need to look at supporting your adrenals if if that's part of the picture. But again, it is so individualized and we can only individualize if we have the right tests done. Absolutely. And I, for my audience, I talk about endocrine disrupting toxins all the time. Episode one actually was 100% on, you know, these are the endocrine disrupting chemicals and here are the best ways to avoid them in real life. Because like you said, you can't be bubble boy, but there are some things that you can do to avoid a lot of those exposures. But let's quickly touch on one of the exposures that I think people don't like to talk about, and that is birth control. What have you seen in your clinical practice? And I have really dived so deep into the research on this. And as somebody who was on birth control for 10 years prior to getting her thyroid hypothyroid diagnosis, I now know that that contributed. And I think one of the things that frustrates me is Not that birth control is offered to women, but the 20-year-old version of me that was given birth control, all that I was told was it's perfectly safe. And then when you get off of it, everything goes back to normal and you can get pregnant. And what they didn't tell me was it basically turns off your hormones. Your future self will be significantly nutrient depleted. Estrogen dominance is one of the things that happens when you're on birth control for a long period of time. 
and then a bunch of other things as well, breast cancer risk, all kinds of things, future risk of depression. I've seen a lot of studies on that in females as well. And 60% of women, young women who are on birth control aren't actually on birth control to not get pregnant. They're on birth control because they went to the doctor for something like acne or cramps or things like that. So let's talk about that for a second. What, What is your opinion on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I cannot tell you how many times I have a patient who's either currently on birth control or has a history of birth control, and they were put on it when they were 12, 13, 14, because they were having heavy periods, or they were having really bad cramping or acne, like you mentioned, whatever it may be, these young girls weren't even going on it to prevent pregnancy. But even if they were, The issue comes down to lack of patient education, lack of education on women's bodies and how our cycles actually work and what that looks like. You know, what are our options of preventing pregnancy in a healthy way other than just taking this pill? And I've helped a lot of women get off birth control. And like you said, there are always issues on the back end. There's always so many nutrient deficiencies, so many things that we can tie back to when they've been on birth control for so long. Birth control is exogenous hormone. We're putting these young girls on a hormone and we're saying that it's not going to affect their hormone balance. How does that, how does that even add up? It, It just doesn't. And so in a perfect world, no woman would ever go on birth control. <laughs> However, the women who have been on it, there are things that you can do to get off it and support your body in the process of getting off of it. But I just always want to educate my patients. I want them to know exactly how their birth control is affecting their body, things that can come down the line. I want to educate them on natural ways to track their cycle and natural ways of preventing pregnancy without birth control. So at the end of the day, I mean, I'm, I always support my patients and what they decide. And I do have some young patients that even after talking with me, they decide to go on the pill. But my job as a physician, I feel like is just educating them so that they can make an educated decision. Absolutely. And I think informed consent is the core of everything that I believe in, whether it's talking about toxins education how to read labels, how to talk to your doctor, getting la Everything is based on this idea that we have the right to make decisions for ourselves and we have full bodily autonomy, but we deserve to have the information given to us. I can guarantee you my 20-year-old self had my doctor sat me down and said, here are all of the long-term risks of you know, basically turning your hormones off. And here's all the things that could happen after the fact. I 100% would have still gone on birth control. But all those years later that when I came off of it and then I had to deal with like the hypothyroidism and the estrogen dominance and the nutrient depletion and miscarriage and infertility and all of those things, I would have been responsible for that choice because my doctor would have told me, given me, you know, I would have been, had informed consent. So you would have made an educated decision for yourself, which is what all patients deserve at the end of the day. 100%. So let's touch on testing. We talked a little bit about the tests that you do, and my naturopathic physician also does all the tests annually all the time. So back on, I think it's episode six, could be wrong, I think it's six, I talk about a full thyroid panel because a lot of people go to their doctor, they have all of the classic signs of having some kind of thyroid issue, and their doctor will only run a TSH. And if you're you're really lucky, like if you beg, (laughs) they'll run like a free T4, which is just so hilarious to me. 
Can you, your experience, like why is that? Why is there this reticence in the allopathic community to test for antibodies so that you know if somebody has Hashimoto's because that's important or, you know, a conversion problem, somebody whose T4 maybe is normal, but they are not converting it. I had the highest reverse T3, like it was through the roof. My body basically was just taking T4 and just making a whole bunch of reverse T3. And I went on a healing journey for that. But had I not had my reverse T3 tested, I would have never known. So what do you think that is? I mean, you know, we talk a lot in medical school when it comes to thorough testing. The main question our attending physicians will ask us when we're, you know, on shift and we're learning is they'll say, if you run this test, is it going to change your treatment? And most of the time in naturopathic medicine, the answer is yes, because we value extensive testing because we always see more of the picture. In allopathic medicine, I think they're so, their main treatment for any kind of hypothyroidism, whether it be Hajimoto's or not, is they're going to give a version of T4, levothyroxine synthroid. And so to them, whether it's autoimmune, whether the, like you said, the reverse T3 is normal or not, that's not going to change their treatment. Their treatment is the same. They're going to give you a low dose and they're going to work you up on the dose until your TSH is within a range that they're happy with. And that's fine. Their goal is for the labs to look good. My goal is for my patient to feel good. So on every annual panel, whether someone has any type of thyroid issue, has any history of thyroid issue, we run a full thyroid panel. We just run everything. We run TSH, of course, which isn't even a thyroid hormone. It's uh, from your brain. (laughs) So it doesn't really even give us much information on the thyroid. It's kind of just, it will be elevated when something's going on with the thyroid, but it's not from the thyroid. We always test free and total T4, free and total T3, reverse T3, like you mentioned, and always, always looking at thyroid antibodies. Even if someone already knows their Hajimoto's, we're always tracking that antithyroglobulin and the antithyroid peroxidase to see are your antibodies elevated for some reason? Have they come down or they're within a good range? Because those antibodies fluctuate so much with your exposure to those triggers, whether that be stress or toxic burden or XYZ. So we're always looking at the full thyroid panel. And we're also always looking at those hormones, seeing how those play in with the thyroid. We're looking at cortisol levels, how that relates to the thyroid. We do test some general nutrient deficiencies and food sensitivity testing is very often done too. And like I said, we can always do more specialty testing if we feel it's indicated and that would be mold and heavy metals and all of those others. But we are never, ever, ever just going to look at TSH. That is just the craziest thing to me. It is crazy. (laughs) You and I agree on that. So you mentioned T4 levothyroxine medication. I I think this is a good conversation too, because it's something that really impacts people practically. For people who are able to get an actual diagnosis because they have a doctor that, you know, ran the numbers, or maybe there's somebody whose TSH is, is truly off. In my experience, endocrinologists, and I've seen a lot of them, they will only prescribe Synthroid, T4 only. What is the reticence on adding T3 into that picture for supporting somebody and also the reticence to use calendular dissectant thyroid? Like I'm on armor. Armor thyroid is what works for me. So what what is where does that come from? So somebody who's already diagnosed, but there's really only one option in their mind for medication. Right. So it's important to know 
TSH, like I mentioned, from the brain tells our thyroid to produce thyroid hormones. Our thyroid will produce T4, which is an inactive thyroid hormone, and then that will then convert to T3, which is our true active thyroid hormone. So often, looking at T3 is going to give us the most insight to how our patient is feeling. So when we're giving T4, you know, our, our hope, doctors that give Synthroid, that give levothyroxine, our hope is that that T4 is then converting to T3. However, like you mentioned in your case, that is not always going to be happening. That conversion isn't always going the way that we want it to. And so I personally, if I have a patient who's on Synthroid, who's been on it for a while and they feel fine, I try not to switch people's medications unless they decide they want to do that. Because if you're on something you feel good on, we focus on everything else. We focus on the root causes and then eventually we can get you off. But I don't just switch medication just to switch it. If someone is coming and they're being diagnosed for the first time, I almost always, I hesitate, I hesitate to say always because nothing, <laughs> nothing always applies to everyone, but I almost always am going to recommend some form of compounded T4, T3 or glandular. There is some controversy, controversy with using glandular with autoimmune hypothyroidism. And the concern would be that if you're giving a glandular form of the thyroid with the T4 and the T3, there's also kind of really small amounts of T1 and T2 as well. The concern would be that your body would recognize that as foreign thyroid tissue and your antibodies would go up, that you would produce more antibodies to your thyroid. I personally haven't really seen that reflected well in the research. And I have a lot of patients that feel amazing on glandulars. So I am much more likely to pay attention to what I see in practice and how my patients feel than if one doctor claims that you shouldn't use glandulars for autoimmune conditions. I myself was on a glandular initially. I ended up switching to a compounded T4, T3, and that's what worked better for me. So again, everyone is different. I try to kind of listen to what my patient wants to do. Of course, if they don't like the idea of taking a, a pig glandular, I take that into consideration as well. But I'm always going to try and recommend taking the T4 and the T3 together because that's how our body produces it. So I feel like our bodies respond better to things that are the most similar to our natural way. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting. One of the changes that I made a couple years ago that for me made a significant difference is I split up my T3 dose into morning and afternoon. And that was a game changer for me. I don't know if you've seen that in your clinical practice as something that helps your patients, but for me, it was a huge positive. Yeah, absolutely. Anyone who kind of has that afternoon slump or feels like they can't get through the day, you know, of course, as long as we're paying attention to the cortisol curve and any other causes of that, I have recommended splitting. That's what it, that's where it's really nice to be able to compound is you can really individualize that dose and split up that T4, T3 and give it to the body when that individual person really needs it the most. So while we're talking about medication, a question I get all the time, because I, even though my Hashimoto's is technically in remission, I still take thyroid medication. I've been working with my doctor, who I love, for a few years now, and we have been able to cut. We've slowly, a little bit at a time, come backwards and lowered my dose little by little by little, and I've been able to reduce mine significantly. Do I think there's ever going to be a time that I can completely get off? I mean, I hope, but I don't, you know, I was on medication for so long. 
And so what would you say to a patient that is newly diagnosed or, you know, maybe has been on medication for a little bit or even a long time? How many patients are able to get off of their medication? And is it easier to heal some of these root causes and have people not need it to begin with? Or have you seen people able to get off of it? Yeah, so this is a hard question because I think people, of course, want the hope of getting off the medication. And I will never tell a patient that it's impossible to get off any kind of medication because I believe that our bodies are so intelligent and our bodies are so capable of healing themselves that if we are willing, we, me and my patient working together, if we are willing to put in the work, then yes, I do I do believe it's possible to get off medication. Now, this this doesn't happen often. I don't see this very often because it isn't it's far from easy. And like you mentioned, it's a long, long process. Typically, you know, depending on how long you've been on the medication, depending on what dose you're on, even in my own life, I'll be honest, I of course, I want to get off medication. But with the stress of medical school, and then recovering from that and the stress of my practice, I just know that in this season of my life, I can't necessarily put in the work that it would take to fully get off of medication. That's me accepting my limits and accepting kind of what's going on in my life around me and the stresses and the pressures that I'm under and still trying to support my body the best way I can naturally and with medication. And so there's nothing wrong with being on medication, whatever it takes to make yourself feel okay and have the capacity to function as a normal human being. If you have Hajimoto's, you know, sometimes without medication feels like you can't even function. So I always tell my patients, if that's something that they have a goal, if they really want to get off medication, I am all for it. Let's go for it. Let's put in the work. Let's do it. It's not going to be easy and it may take a long time, but we're going to work towards it. Now, when you ask, is it better to, or is it easier to kind of treat these root causes if we if we never start medication? The honest answer is yes. If you don't go on medication, then your thyroid isn't you know, sometimes when you start medication, your thyroid will sort of take a back seat because you're taking that exogenous hormone. Before you start medication, it is a bit easier to get your thyroid to really want to work to produce those hormones on its own still because it hasn't gotten used to an exogenous source. So I actually spent an entire year, I gave myself a year from when I was diagnosed to when I started medication. And I did everything that I knew how, everything within my power while not being able to remove that external stressor of medical school. And I wasn't able to fully heal my thyroid to the to the place I needed it to be. And I got to the point where I was like, you know what, I got to get through, I got to get through school, I got to get on some medication. And so my journey now and trying to get off of that is a little bit more difficult. If I, you know, it would have been a bit easier had I succeeded in that first year, but I don't believe it's impossible. I love that. Nothing's impossible. And you're right. I do tell people, they reach out to me and say, oh, I've, you know, I hear you say you've put your Hashimoto's into remission and you've cut your medication, you know, by half. Do you think it's possible to get off? And I do think what you said is so important. It's okay to need thyroid medication. Absolutely. It's important for people to know that. <laughs> like it's- yeah. And I went through, I went through, you know, the phases of denial and I was like, I'm the healthiest person I know. I don't want to be on medication. This feels like a failure. But then the second I got on medication and I felt like I could function again, I was like, you know what? That's okay. I'm allowed, like I'm, I can support my body in every way I know how. And that's allowed to include medication. 
So even if you think about it not being with the thyroid, with any medication, if someone has really, really high blood pressure, of course we can avoid having them on medication forever. There's so many lifestyle things we can do to lower blood pressure. However, for this acute time period, they might need to be on medication to keep their blood pressure in a safe range while we implement all these other things. Absolutely. So let's talk about lifestyle factors. I'm just going to throw some things at you and I'd love to know your opinion. Gluten. How do you feel about gluten in people's diets when you have Hashimoto's? Yeah. So this is also a little bit of a controversial one. Personally, I am gluten-free. I've been gluten-free for for many years before I was actually even diagnosed with Hashimoto's. So I kind of, you know, that was easier for me. But a lot of what we learn in school is gluten's molecular structure is very similar to the molecular structure of the thyroid. So if we're eating lots of gluten, our immune system will create more antibodies to our thyroid, kind of similar like train of thought as the glandular. And so we kind of learn in medical school, point blank period, if you have Hajimoto's, if you have autoimmune thyroiditis, no gluten, no, you know, no other options. Most of my patients that I see give up gluten, they do feel significantly better. Is this because they're not eating gluten or is this because most of the gluten foods they were eating were processed breads, cakes, cookies, all these other foods that are inflammatory for other reasons. And then once they cut those out, they feel better. Shocker. So, you know, again, it kind of goes hand in hand with, will you feel better? Most likely. Is it the number one most important thing for you to change in your lifestyle? I don't necessarily think so. I think it would be more important for you to find out what your food sensitivities are and cutting out those foods is going to be significantly more valuable than just cutting out gluten. I love that. So I am gluten-free also, and I I just feel completely better. And now if I do happen to have gluten, man, I feel terrible. <laughs> like, you know, my yeah. body, my body kind of gotten used to it a little bit, but now that I've been off of it for so long, it really does not like it at all. But one of the things that I see people do that makes me crazy And so whenever I say I'm gluten-free, I always feel the need to caveat it with, but I also don't eat processed gluten-free products. (laughs) So like the the gluten-free breads, and there's a couple that have come out recently that are so much better, but the majority of the gluten-free, you know, pizza crust and the bread and the bagels, if you read the ingredients, I mean, there's like 12 things in there you should be avoiding anyway. Yeah, I remember when I was in college, I went gluten-free and dairy-free, but I was eating grilled cheese with gluten-free bread and dairy-free cheese. And that just gives me the heebie-jeebies thinking back on it because I just, I would never, you know, it's almost better to eat the real bread and have real cheese than have the processed stuff where God knows what they put in that. Okay, next one, fluoride. Do you talk to your patients about Fluoride, there's, you know, obviously I tell everyone to filter their water for a lot of reasons, heavy metals, you know, estrogens, PFAT, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. But I do also tell people to make sure that their filters have fluoride filters in it because studies show fluoride inhibits the uptake of iodine and does impact your thyroid. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. Fluoride, (laughs) it's horrible. Not only is it going to affect your thyroid, but it affects your brain. It affects so many other parts of your body. And like I said, as a naturopathic doctor, we're always looking at the body as a whole. And so 
getting rid of environmental exposures to things like fluoride and other toxins, you know, estrogens, all these things we've been talking to. If you do one good thing for your health, it would be to get water filters, remove plastics, avoid pesticides. These things kind of benefit you all around. And, you know, a lot of people ask, when I go to the dentist, should I not do fluoride? My dentist says, you know, it's so good for my teeth, X, Y, Z. My answer is also, it's always absolutely no. And if your dentist is recommending fluoride, maybe we should find a a biologic dentist or a holistic dentist because yeah, it might be good for your teeth, but is that worth what it's doing to the rest of your body? It's funny. We, we have this like women, especially, especially when women are taking their kids to the dentist. This is usually where I get this question. And I wish women knew that shopping for a doctor or a dentist or all of these things, you should put real effort into making sure the person that you are going to hire to take care of you and give you advice has the same value set that you have. Because you can go to 25 dentists and 30% of them who are highly educated on fluoride will tell you, you know, no, use hydroxyapatite instead. It works better. It's a mineral. We don't use fluoride. And then, you know, 70% of them will say, you have to have fluoride. And they're not going to all agree. It's the same as like you go to a functional medicine doctor versus a physician. It's not like there's a set of facts that everybody's working off of. And so it's really important that people feel empowered. I have fired doctors, pediatricians, dentists. You know, if somebody doesn't align with how I feel and what I value, I find somebody who does. And I think we should normalize that. Absolutely. I mean, you are in charge of your health and you should never just blindly listen to what your doctors tell you. I mean, I even say this to my own patients. I was like, if you ever question anything I say, please question me. Don't just take what I say at face value. I want to be your partner because this is your health. This is your body. And ultimately, if I do my job well, I'll never see you again because I'm going to give you the tools and I'm going to educate you to a place where maybe you come in annually just to get your blood work done, but you are able to flourish in your health and take care of your body in a way where you don't need me to micromanage what you're doing in your health. And so, yeah, it's so important. And I went through this with my own health journey is going to so many doctors that would just write things off or not listen to me or you know, like I said, with the nutrition, like, oh, that's not going to affect anything. And they just blow it off. Like it's no big deal. And that should be a check in your, in your spirit, you know, a little red flag, like this is not right. Because even if, even if your doctor is, is truly educated on the topic and they're trying to tell you that whatever you read online or on WebMD is incorrect, they should always be willing to listen to you and to explain things to you, not just say, no, that's not how it is, and then move on. Absolutely. Okay, so let's wrap this up by doing something that I think would be beneficial. And I'm going to throw this at you, and I didn't tell you I was going to do this, so we'll see how good you are on your feet. Fun. <laughs> there, there are a lot of people listening to this right now that have insurance, they're on fixed incomes, they feel like they don't have a choice on who their doctor is, they have a thyroid issue, whether it's Hashimoto's, hypothyroidism. If you were to tell somebody that you don't have the opportunity to like talk to and do testing on, but just in general from a health perspective, the things that would benefit them, what are some of the very first lifestyle changes that those people should consider so that while they're trying to find a new doctor 
or advocating for their health, that they have a place to start? What would you tell those people? Yes. So what I love about naturopathic medicine is we have a therapeutic order that when we look at treating any patient, we always, always start with the basics. So before we, you know, do heavy detox, before we do botanical therapy, before we do IV therapy, before we do all these things that some patients might not have access to, we are always going to do two things. And that is restore the foundations to health and remove obstacles to cure. And a lot of these things are things that patients can do on their own. And that's going to be, you know, foundations of health. This is, this really is just restoring the basics. Are you getting enough sleep? Are you eating and nourishing your body? Are you eating nutrient dense foods? Are you getting sunlight exposure? Are you waking up in the morning with the sun and exposing your eyes to the sun and regulating your circadian rhythm? Are you in community? That is a huge part of health, being with other people, finding people who are also on a health journey and sharing that with them. Are you moving your body every day? Sweating is one of the best ways that you can detox your body. You're detoxing through your skin. Um, And then removing obstacles to cure. So being really careful with your exposure to stress. You know, there's things we can't control, but what are the things we can control? Stressors on our body can be external stressors. They can also be internal. If you're eating things you shouldn't be eating, it can be the environmental toxins that you know so much about and you preach on all the time. What products are you using? What are you putting on your skin? What are you breathing in your home? All of these things, it seems like a lot, but every little change can make a huge difference. So I always want my patients to start with the basics and just really, your body knows what to do if you restore those foundations and remove the obstacles, your body's healing mechanisms will take over. I love that. And those those are all things that are so accessible. So many of the things you said are free. Mm-hmm. And so this is really something, all those things that you just mentioned is something that if you don't have a doctor supporting you that aligns with your values, you're maybe you're in the process of trying to find that that support, you can start doing those small things. And I'll tell you, honestly, waking up with the sun and getting unblocked time in the sun where my body is actually absorbing sunlight and creating vitamin D and balancing my hormones, because that's your circadian rhythm when you kick it off. We spend so much time on our blue light devices. Our rhythms are so off. So I love that you talked about the importance of getting that sunshine in your eyes in the morning. Yeah. Especially with so many people working from home these days, it is lacking so much and it is so important. Oh, it was such a big missing piece to my Hashimoto's healing journey and something I didn't even think that would be that important. And it ended up being really a missing, like a key piece of my healing. Mm-hmm. Well, I loved this. This was such a phenomenal interview. I know it's going to help so many people. And I think the most important question to the people listening here, if you are lucky enough to live in the Phoenix metropolitan area, people can actually go find you and see you and you can support them. So what is the best way for people that are local to the Phoenix metropolitan area to get in touch with you? Yes. So I work at an amazing practice in Scottsdale, Arizona. It's called Naturopathic Physicians Group. I have an amazing staff and team and great group of doctors that I work there with. So if you ever want to come see me, that's where I am. I think we're going to leave a link to our website, naturopathicgroup.com. And that's the kind of easiest way to get our information. And I would love to meet you guys. So please come see me. 
highly, highly recommend. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast and I hope to have you back again. This was fantastic. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Congratulations on finishing another episode of the Detox Dilemma podcast. And I got to tell you, I think that might be one of my favorite episodes yet. I love that we had an opportunity to talk about the role that toxins play in your health and how they can create a situation where your hormones are imbalanced, like estrogen dominance, and how that can lead to hypothyroidism and Hashimoto's. There's a reason why this podcast is called The Detox Dilemma, because I know that it's not easy to identify where the toxins really are to figure out which companies and which brands are actually creating products that don't have these toxins in them. But then also, what's the problem with the toxins? What do they actually do to your body and why should you even care? I also hear a lot from my audience that it's overwhelming and it's hard to buy things from a bunch of different companies. I have a toxin-free shopping guide where I show you all the brands and the products that I have vetted in every category over at www.toxinfreeshoppingguide.com. But sometimes it's helpful to have somebody walk you through the process, step you through the things that are most important, and also have a one-stop shop for all the things that you need. So instead of shopping at a bunch of different places, you can get everything from the same place. That's why I created Toxin Free in 3. There's one place and only one place where you will purchase your toxin-free products. You purchase the products, I deliver the course. The course is eight lessons and it walks you through step-by-step. What are the most important things in your home to swap out first? And then it takes you through the entire journey of getting to the end of the eight weeks. And at the end of the eight weeks, you've pretty much cleaned out or have the knowledge on how to clean out all of the most toxic things in your home. And then you also have a plan to continue moving forward. The course also comes with a one-on-one Zoom with me where we can talk about whatever you want. We can talk about product audits. You can bring all of your products to the Zoom and I can take a look at them for you and teach you how to read the labels. Some students want to talk about nutrition or finding a more functional doctor and Some people just want to chat and I love that. This is your opportunity to have me as your personal cheerleader. Now, I only run this course every quarter and I have a limited amount of spots because of that one-on-one attention that you get. So if you're somebody who would benefit from that extra attention and that one-on-one time, go ahead and hop over to www.toxinfreeand3.com and check it out. I only take 25 students, so doors will close when the course is full or on May 31st, whatever comes first. The last time I ran this course, we actually sold out all of the spots in two weeks. So if you're interested, don't wait. And as always, I hope your life is getting just a little less toxic. See you next week.